You're listening to episode 214 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, it's a new year, and I'm excited to be able to bring you new episodes. I've got a series of guests lined up in the coming weeks, and I'm looking forward to many of the conversations, some great books I've already been reading this year. And I'm hoping in the weeks ahead to have some updates for you on my own writing. I haven't talked about it over the last couple of years since The Five Masculine Instincts came out, but I've been hard at work on other book projects. And uh, 2024 should be a year with some updates, uh, maybe even a chance to read some of that work. So I'm excited for things ahead. And looking forward to today's conversation, Mark Fugit has become a friend and somebody that I respect as a pastor, and it was great being able to read his new book, Lost Shepherd. We have a great conversation about Psalm 23, the way nostalgia forms around passages of Scripture, and the place of history, and the role history plays in growing as a believer. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Mark Fugit. He's been a pastor for 18 years and an adjunct professor for a decade. He has a bachelor's degree in history, master's degrees in history, theological studies and theology, and a PhD in biblical studies and historical theology. He lives with his wife, Laura, and four children on a farm here in Missouri. As we were just discussing, I think he is the closest in proximity to me that I've ever had on the podcast, so certainly a neighbor here in Missouri. And he joins me today to talk about his recent book, Lost Shepherd, What Believers Once Knew About Psalm 23 That the Modern World Has Forgotten. Well, Mark, it's a privilege and honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Chase, thanks for having me on. Well, maybe a good place to start is I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, your your current place of pastoring as well as the academic work that you've been doing. I know those are two things that you've integrated together well. And so I'd love to hear just a little bit more about the, the place you're serving. Yeah, so we had an opportunity about a year and a half ago to actually come back to a church that I knew and loved. It was the first church that we, uh, my wife and I, moved to as I was the associate and youth pastor about 18 years ago, a little over 18 years ago now. And since uh, after several years here, we moved away and pastored other places and uh, were able to move back, back to this area of and uh, so we knew a lot of the people. We love the church and we love the mission here. And so we're, we're we've been in rural ministry um, our whole lives and just uh, focusing on why God has us here as a church and why now. I think there's a lot of um, just a, a lot of sadness around ministry in general right now. You talk to pastors and and just a lot of defeat in in Christian many Christians and being able to come back to an area and just remind them that God has us all here on purpose, um, despite the challenges. In fact, maybe because of those challenges is why God has called all of us, not just uh, me as the pastor, but all of us as as members to wherever we are, wherever we're called to serve. So I really feel like that's my calling. It's been a big part of my ministry. Um, just bringing together uh, rural ministry and the value that God sees in that and uh, revitalization, bringing life back to churches that desperately need it as they are closing all around us. I have been an academic my whole life. You listed uh, some of the degrees. I've basically been in full-time school uh, forever until just a few years ago when I uh, finished my PhD. And um what I've seen with that is throughout it, it's made me a better pastor. It's made me um, more aware of what I don't know 
And I feel like I thought I knew a lot more 18 years ago than I do now. Um, and so that has really been a good thing because it's driven me to go deeper. Um, it's been made, equipped me to be able to handle different things. So I think academia and, and pastoring, for those that are, are called in that direction, it's a great combination. But one of the things I wanted to do when I kept pursuing degrees was not only become a better pastor, but I wanted to be able to write. I've always loved reading and writing. And uh, I don't know, it's been going around online lately, the uh, what book you were reading when you're 12. And I, I haven't posted, but I was trying to think of what it was. And I was just thinking of like stacks of books that I was reading then and just already thinking about writing and, and what I wanted to do. And so I, I wanted to be able to get those academic credentials and understanding and research ability to be able to feed that writing and really see writing as a way to serve the church and serve the people around me. That's been my goal. And so anything, any project, even articles, um, different things I've been working on, including this book on Psalm 23, have really been born out of that combination of being wanting to bring together academics and writing. So I trained as a, a medieval historian, which is strange for a Protestant. Uh, it seems there we're kind of rare in this uh, field. Um, but since I've worked in a lot of different areas of history. So now I get a chance to I teach part time on the side for three different universities. And uh, this has been a big, big week because we started everywhere this week. Um, but I, I love being able to do that. It keeps my academics fresh. It keeps my research fresh. And allows me to interact with students. Um, and so that's just a great opportunity to be able to do that. So I think it, they've partnered well in my life. I know it doesn't work for everybody, but it just is uh, two passions, I feel like, that have come together and equipped me. Well, so much that resonates with me, too. I mean, not only being here in Missouri, which is not as we were sort of joking before we hit record, not really the center of of publishing or writing or right. maybe even the arts, uh, maybe probably not of uh, medieval theology as well, I imagine. Certainly not. Uh, yeah. But the uh, opportunities we have to to pastor, to pursue sort of these other, I think, are really callings, these other vocations and the interesting, unique ways God sort of mixes those things into work is something I've resonated with. And it often feels like when I interview authors, um, there's certainly a good number of them that are in, the, you know, the Portland's and the Nashville's and the New York's and, and thank goodness for their work there. But I always find it really encouraging, and I, I hope listeners catch too, that there's so much good writing and good work and good pastoring and just good thinking taking place in places all over the country, all over the world that you've not heard of. And uh, in a unique way, I think those perspectives, that those writers who are doing that work in those places, I think that that work matters a lot. So I'm really grateful for what you've been doing there. Yeah, I think that I appreciate that. And I think that speaks to really one of the interesting things about pursuing a writing career in while while pastoring while doing ministry where God has called you uh, you don't know where that's going to be and you find yourself there and um i think often we're put in that place where we feel like we have to pick between moving to a location to be a part of something or or not and i think this has just been a, a blessing to be able to bring these things together here yeah, certainly, in unexpected ways and places as well. 
Um, I want to get into the book. I got a chance to read a, an early copy of Lost Shepherd and was really grateful for the opportunity and uh, particularly struck by this idea that, that comes through in the title itself. Uh, the image of Christ as a shepherd is certainly a familiar one, but I think it's worth sort of letting you articulate why that that image resonates. But then as you sort of articulate in the book itself, what what about that image of Christ as a shepherd has actually been lost to us that needs some recovery? The idea of Jesus says shepherd was brought up by Jesus himself in John. So this is not a new idea at all, like you said. And it's been a really popular image of Christ throughout church history. In fact, the early church, one of the most common images in the early church was Jesus as kind of a beat up shepherd, kind of a roughed up shepherd in, in art that would depicted him as as a kind of a rough and tumble guy that was willing to go to the far reaches of the earth to find the lost. And so that image really sustained the early church as it struggled through persecution and different and different issues that it faced in those formative uh, first couple of centuries. The image stays with, with Jesus throughout history, but the impression of it on believers has changed. And really what I wanted to do with this book was sparked out of my own research, my own Bible study. And I was doing research for something else, and I can't remember what project it was because it's been about five, six years ago. And I was, I came across a Latin translation of the uh, first verse of Psalm 23 that instead of saying the Lord is my shepherd, it, it had the word for reign as a king there. The Lord reign, uh, is, reigns over me or is king over me. And that image, I'm, I'm, I kept going on with something else, but that image all of a sudden just kind of kept coming back. And I thought about how different that impression of Christ as our shepherd leader might be had I memorized that version instead of the one that we all know. That really set me on the trail then of thinking about different historical impressions, not just of that verse, but the whole psalm. And we know, if we've studied our Bibles, that in different times in history, even in our own lifetimes, people take different verses different ways, and it kind of a dominant uh, interpretation takes over in certain ways. Well, you add a couple thousand years to that, and you really start to see what's going on with Psalm 23 specifically. And so I noticed then with the uh, the idea of the, the king or the reign, medieval history, the time when the, the Latin translation came out, was a time when they understood hierarchy. Everything was interpreted through hierarchy. And so it made sense to see Jesus, the, your caretaker, the one that was going to watch out for your well-being, defend you as being akin to the good king, the good ruler. If I am under his care, everything is okay, because they knew what it was like to be under a somebody, a bad king's care or a bad leader's care. They also knew the value of being and living under somebody good. And I think that starts to remind us of, of how scripture spoke to them as people and how they connected Jesus's idea of being the good shepherd to what they experienced in their lives. So that idea got me going through Psalm 23 in a lot more depth over the next few years. And I started to notice things. One of the other big things that stood out to me is what happened during the Reformation, specifically in England with Psalm 23, as Bible translators were beginning to look at the text again and to bring it into English 
And they had a different view or maybe an elevated view of Scripture than most of us today. Not that they saw it as more important, because I think we, um, most of us, uh, in, at least in our circles, see it as very important. But they realized what it was to be without it. So they had experienced scriptural scarcity. And during the Reformation, when they read lines like, he leads us to pastures and to waters, they didn't just see those as an opportunity to take a break that God was leading us to rest. They saw those as sustenance. Scripture became food. And so they interpreted those passages differently because they, they realized how vital it was to have access to Scripture and to have access to God himself and to understand God in that way. And I think that's a great example of how that passage can speak to us again and kind of revitalize us as we understand how other people have deeply appreciated the necessity the total dependence that they saw in Psalm 23 that we maybe in our modern understanding have kind of lightened the impression of what that means, the magnitude of what, what God is talking about in that passage. And so I think those types of examples and so many more um, are what we see if we look deeply at the Psalm historically and kind of appreciate what other people have said and I think one of the biggest challenges for us as modern Christians is to be willing to learn from Christians of the past and to not fall into this pit of presentism where our interpretation right now is the best that there ever has been. You and I as pastors, we know that we we do want to have stand on some beliefs, right? We don't want to just say there, there nothing is for sure. But as we stand on those beliefs, we do realize that those beliefs are built on the understanding and interpretations of others. And they're, they're a response. Sometimes they're a better response to a mistake in the past. And sometimes they're building on what the people in the past got right. And so I think we've got to work through that as modern believers. Yeah, I think you, what you're describing, C.S. Lewis's idea of chronological snobbery or this idea of progress that we've sort of, yes. uh, we're, we're always getting better and smarter and sort of leaving behind history. And I, I think you articulate well uh, what you do well in the book, which is this intersection of, of both scripture, but also what we have through historical writings to help us better understand not only the scriptures, but the moment we're in. Um, I recently was reading Philip Reef, a philosopher who talks about, I think he simplifies it for the sake of the point, but he talks about these phases that we've gone through from uh, the religious man, he calls it, to the economic man, to what he now calls the psychological man. And he makes the point that the the religious man was born to be saved and the psychological man, the time we're in, is is born to be pleased. That so much of the way we think about faith and 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 values and the world today is is about our own consumption, our own pleasure, our own affirmation and fulfillment. And I think you see that in in kind of what you're describing as Psalm 23 having turned into this simply a word of comfort. Certainly it is, but exclusively this sort of word of comfort or affirmation. And so maybe you could talk a bit about the sort of nostalgia that has built up around Psalm 23 and how we go about the work of recovering some of these passages that have become, I mean, if, if there are if there are two passages of scripture that a person has memorized, it's probably the Lord's Prayer and it's probably Psalm 23. 
which for as great as that is, can actually make it a challenge to, to hear in a fresh way, which is what I think your book is trying to do. Yeah, the therapeutic gospel, the idea that the story of Christ has been reduced to something, as you said, it was kind of in this psychological era, something to make us feel better. Certainly, I believe the gospel should make us feel better. I, don't, I think emotions are an important part of being human, and I think uh, the fact that the gospel is proclaimed as good news, and in fact means good news, is should make us feel better. But if that is where it only resides, then we have a, a deep problem. And Psalm 23 has certainly fallen victim to that, certainly has the Lord's Prayer, and I, I, we could talk about the Lord's Prayer for a while too, I'm sure. Um, but to, to Psalm 23, we're not really sure exact the exact moment in history uh, when it started to evolve, but I think it basically followed what you just described, kind of as those eras in in history over the last three or four hundred years, as we moved from the at least in the Western world, where we moved from kind of a deeply religious aspect to through the Enlightenment and the influences of that, good and bad, and uh, into what we see today as we kind of analyze everything and look at it for uh, our own psychological good. Psalm 23, as we all know, became a funeral psalm. Um, most scholars think that, that this probably happened right around uh, the civil, the United States Civil War. Um, and different scholars give different reasons, but it break, basically breaks down to the time of uh, one of the reasons, a massive loss. People were experiencing um, loss in their families at an accelerated and acute rate. And they were trying to cope. And at that time, there was a high level of biblical literacy. People had access to the Bible. If they had no other books, they tended to have a Bible. And it became a, a, a spot to go to. One of the other reasons speculated is that uh, Abraham Lincoln used the psalm in uh, some of his uh, writings and some of his talks at that time. And so almost uh, what it ha what it began is it kind of ushered the psalm into what we now as historians today call the civil religion of the United States. These This notion that really wasn't culminated until uh, people like Eisenhower and others historically, but this idea where we could be, as people, kind of secular, but keep some pieces of scripture in our lives, not because they spoke the truth of Christ and our need for him, but because they offered, they made us feel better. And then that's really the sad thing that's happened to Psalm 23. Now I still use Psalm 23 at funerals. I think it does speak volumes to people that are hurting, but I think it speaks about the people that are, that are living to give them hope in Christ for today and to carry on um, despite their their feelings of loss or whatever's going on around them. And so I think really as Christians, recovering Psalm 23 is just a start. One of the things I wanted to do with the book was to really just give a sample of what we could do with all Scripture. But Psalm 23 just stood out because it's so nostalgic. It's so well-known uh, it's part of the vernacular of of America, Christian and unchristian, and I really wanted to dig in to see why is it still Christian? What it, what is there that can still speak to us? 
And how can we be better followers of Christ if we understand the shepherd of Psalm 23? What does that process look like for for pastors, but also just believers who may have, as you mentioned it, these sort of uh, stock set of scriptures memorized or at least familiarity, the language of it? What does it look like to begin recovering that and trying to read it uh, perhaps in a new way, or I think as you've articulated it well, in a more historically rich way to, to really be able to understand what we have in front of us when we turn to these passages that are so familiar. How do you go about that work? Yeah, I had a great conversation the other day with uh, somebody at church, basically about this idea. They were wanting, uh, in the new year, they were wanting to get more in depth with their scripture reading and they've read the Bible before, so this was not a new thing to them. That's a different conversation, you know, when I have that, to you know, get somebody excited about the Scripture for the first time. This was somebody who was dealing with the same problem that we are just talking about. They've read the Scripture before, and it's familiar. And they're saying, how can I get more out of what I'm reading? Because I tend just to be, they, they said they tended to be skeptical. They tended to just kind of read it for the sake of reading it. And it, it really brought me back to, to this question and what we're talking about with the book. Whenever I approach a scripture, I don't need to do anything dramatically new to it for it to speak to me. And I think that's one of the temptations, especially in a, in a progressive world, that says, I've got to find some new thing to do with scripture. I want to find the, the old thing to do with scripture. I want to find the depth of meaning that's spoken to people and, and, and inspired people for centuries because of what God did in his word. And so what I told them, uh, this individual the other day, was let's change the questions we're asking when we're reading the text. I can read the same verse that I read last year, but let me go to it now and say, and, and you know these as pastor, as a pastor, but basically ask these questions, why? Why did this make it in the Bible? Why does God have this? And then what should I do? This idea of putting action, and sometimes it's just a mind action. It's not that I'm having to read every verse and then you know get up and, and leave the building, but it's what do I do with this word? What do I do with this scripture? so that it becomes alive again to us. And I, I think those are the first questions that I that I ask that I think will get us on this road to recovery. It helps us get over the nostalgia. The other day I was talking to a pastor from New England, and he said the people up there, he's just, re, he's just introducing them to the idea of church and idea of Scripture. And I think here in the Ozarks, we understand that here the problem is reintroducing folks that have just become so familiar with the gospel story. And that's not always the case. There's a lot of new people here, and I have all kinds of conversations. But generally, people have heard the stories before. They've heard Psalm 23 before, and it just doesn't do anything for them anymore. It doesn't mean anything. So we've got to get in there and say and look at what the, the truth of it is. Why is it still there? Why did God give it to us? And and ask those hard questions, because I don't believe that God gave us Scripture just for nostalgia, just to make us feel good. He, he, we talk about the Scripture being the truth of God. It's God showing us truth. That means he's doing something with it. And uh, so I think that that is a good start. The historical aspect of it can come in to bolster that, to help us answer that question. When I get to a passage and say, well, why is this in here? 
Sometimes I need some historical help. Sometimes that's in the foot footing of my study Bible. Sometimes that means I need to go a little deeper and um, bring in those other voices that help answer that question for me. Because I have an inkling that there's a similar reason 500, 1,000, 1,500 years ago that God had a passage in Scripture like Psalm 23 Back then, I'm, I'm a, I feel like he has a similar reason for that today, to speak to Christians. We have different challenges, but we have the same need for him. Well, one of the areas of your work has certainly been this integration of history. And perhaps you could talk to the role of history in the life of a believer. And I asked the question partly because I think history often feels like something you're either into or you're not, right? It's kind of like a hobby yeah. or an interest. Well, I saw, I saw a meme the other day that said, uh, congratulations, you're in your 30s. You now have to decide if you'll get really into smoking meats or World War II history, <laughs> right? Like the, the, exactly. this is just kind of a, a hobby to be into history. But what is, certainly you've studied history. It is a part of your calling and your work. But what is the place of history in the life of a believer and particularly in the spiritual life, this growth in trying to, to, to become more like Christ, the role history plays? Yeah, and I wish it wasn't that dichotomy, um, but that seems to be the way it is. And so many people have had a bad experience with history, and so they feel like they don't want, they just don't like to study history. They don't they don't like it. Or like you said, um, they like some unique aspect of it as as they age. Um, I'm, I think I'm kind of uh, in my World War II era this week. I've, I'm reading a little bit on World War II, but <laughs> the uh, the struggle then and I think it starts with maybe us as pastors as an opportunity to lead in that direction, is to introduce history and um, theology or our study of God, to introduce those things as partners and as a way to encourage the church, not as um, separate. Now, I know some great historians that are not theologians and that they just do pure history, and I res- I love their work and respect them for that. But I think we have a different calling um, at least, and I can speak for myself, I feel like um, the Psalm 23 book and really what I've tried to do with all of my work is to see it as an intersection, to see it as an opportunity for me as a historian to dig into some of these things that, uh, to be honest, some historical research is not real exciting. And it, it is sometimes you're sifting through stacks and stacks of things, but you're looking for those bits of value then to bring back and I feel like it's it's almost the treasure in the field. It's I'm finding these these things that help us understand Christ better, and I'm bringing them back, and I just want to share those with the people around me. And that's really been a description of what I try to do with my writing, and really what I try to do is I preach. I tr- I feel like I try I try to integrate these stories, these individuals, these basically testimonies of past Christians, so that. Today's Christians can realize that their roots are deeper than just themselves or just themselves and their parents or grandparents or however they came to faith. And I think that richness really helps us, especially in a world that is really confused. It's really struggling with identity. It's struggling with uh, what what's next to realize that we're part of something bigger doesn't mean we can't learn new things and make corrections along the way, but it it certainly, I think, helps to understand us as somebody that is deeply rooted 
And so I, I think that helps. And so I think history should be a tool. And I think pastors can lead the way on that by gently bringing in uh, elements of history. I think uh, we don't want to make a sermon a history lecture, nor do we want to hand our church member a 400-page monograph on you know something that happened 700 years ago. But what we can do is begin to broaden our our examples as we preach, our stories as we write, and to bring in some of these voices that I think can just add a richness to our our understanding. I've certainly also found my historical readings to be beneficial in writing and pastoring, and I often tend to think of it as an ongoing conversation. Um, and often I find the best conversationalists are the people who have gone before me. Uh, some of my favorite writers, some of my favorite books, some of the things that have impacted me most as a Christian uh, are, are not the things that feels like we're trying to figure out in, in current history, in this current conversation, but those things in the past as you sort of engage in that conversation going back and discover Oftentimes, though, sometimes the language or the context is different, that there really are these same fundamental human questions that people are wrestling with, that same ongoing conversation, even as you move back in time. Yeah, we live in a, a bombastic time when everybody wants to say that whatever is happening right now has never happened before. And the challenges we face are completely new. Therefore, we need new tools, new solutions, all these things. And every side, every every political side, every every uh, seems like even Christian, non-Christian, everybody does this. And we need to be people that bring this back. And I think history is a good tool for that, right? To say, and that that's why I agree with you. A lot of these past uh, writers that have really gone through very similar challenges, to just like you said, different settings, different scenarios, but deep, deeply disturbing challenges. And they write on it, and they give us that great perspective to say. How is Christ going to help us make it through? And the same solutions that were found in him before are still the same solutions we need today. As you were applying this work, the reading of history, the sort of trying to recover a sense of Psalm 23, uh, you alluded to some of this at the beginning, but what do you feel like you found or recovered, even just for yourself from Psalm 23, that had been missing from that sort of nostalgic reading that so many are familiar with? I think the biggest thing for me, uh, the notion of of total dependence, the reliance on God that I mentioned before, but also recovering the psalm as a psalm for the living. I think, like a lot of us, it had just become a a funeral psalm, and I think bringing it out of that typecast and bringing it back into devotional life like it was meant to be was the biggest plus for me, just personally as a Christian. and. What I have seen then and through history is just the different interpretations have just made it richer, um, even when the different interpretations disagree or disagree with where I stand on it. Even um, I was also fascinated at just the, the depth of thought that went into some of these different things, even things that I, interpretations I don't necessarily agree with, like sometimes whenever uh, believers in the past uh, see the phrase the the still waters. They thought, well, that means baptism. You got some some people uh, in the early medieval period that every time they saw water in the Bible, they thought baptism. I'm not necessarily sure that the waters of baptism is what Psalm 23 is talking about, but it it, it sure makes us think. Same thing with the table. Whenever God prepares the table before them in the presence of their enemies, some Christians immediately saw that and thought, 
always talking about the the communion or the the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist ceremony. And um, I'm not 100% sure that that's right either, but I was encouraged by reading those those accounts, those theologians, as they worked through the text and really tried to defend their position because it made me think deeply about the words that I had been reading. And one of the things to snap us out of nostalgia is to start thinking deeply about something again. Nostalgia at its very core is just a shallow impression. It's a memory more than it is a depth of study. And so I think once you start to really dig deep, it can't be nostalgic anymore because now when I read Psalm 23 and hopefully after people read the book, they'll have the same feeling. You can't help but think of all these other things. And so you have to make a decision on what, you know, where you're going to stand and what you're seeing there. And it really, it helps us dig deeper into the text, similar to what I feel like uh, I'll do this for you. So you don't have to do it. What Eugene Peterson did with long obedience in the same direction with the Psalms of ascent. You read that and you can't read those Psalms in the later part of the book of Psalms. You can't read them the same way because you've thought deeply on them. And so now they speak much more richly as I read them. I got an opportunity to preach Psalm 122 um, the the last day of the year. And uh, it was just a richness that uh, that maybe I wouldn't have had had I not thought deeply on it. I would like to talk a little bit about the process of writing as well. And uh, I can't help hearing in your language this the way that your work as a pastor is integrated with your work as a writer. Uh, how do those two things fit together for you? And how are you going about the work of writing as a pastor? Yeah, I think many of the things I do as a pastor port over into writing because a lot of this is built a lot of ministry is built on questions. Um, concern, people come to us as pastors and they ask us questions. And what I, over time, you start to see certain types of questions. You start to kind of get a feeling for what are the needs? Where are people at? And then you couple that with things you see you know, online and in the broader world. And you bring that together, what you're seeing locally. And you start to kind of see what are some of the questions that maybe I am equipped to answer? I don't think I'm equipped to answer all questions. I think there are some pastors that fall into that trap that think that they're um, an expert on everything. I think God has called us and equipped us in certain areas. And when I see questions come together that I am equipped to answer, that's what I try to write on. So that's what becomes maybe an article or a book proposal, um, something that can speak to my people right here, right now. Well, you know, the writing process, something they'll speak to my people in two to three, four years um, when it all shakes out, um, if it's a book. But I think writing should, as a pastor, I feel like my writing should try to to, uh, be helpful. It should try to answer those questions. And so I've tried to do that. Um, For me, writing, it has to fit into the margins. Um, It kind of is is relegated to the edges um, of just because of my time. We've got four kids and um, we've got a farm and then I have the church full time and I'm teaching. And so there's a lot of other things that that kind of take um, the front, second and third and fourth seats there. Um, but writing is one of those things that I, I love to do. And I'm just able to kind of go back to that and to think about 
how could I have a longer conversation? I always feel like I get to do a little of it on Sunday mornings. Um, and in my Bible studies, I teach during the week. I, uh, I manuscript my sermons because I've always been a writer before I was a speaker. And so I feel like, you know, a Sunday morning is an opportunity to give five or six pages, um, if I'm talking fast, of, of, you know, of a thought. Writing is the opportunity to be able to do that longer. And that's why I like it so much. I think it works well for the pastor because it allows you to to finish on a Sunday morning, close your mouth and to sit down and say all this other stuff that I wanted to give you. I'm going to give it to you in another way, maybe, or I'm going to find an avenue to deliver that to you, that com- carry on that conversation. And so I, I like that as a pastor because it allows me to to uh, have a almost to use writing as the cutting room floor for the sermon to be able to say, I, I want to expand on this. I want to dig deeper into this. And so maybe I need to write a blog post or an article or or even a book on some of these things that I've discovered um, even Psalm 23, I, I preached through the Psalm verse by verse right at the beginning, before this was even a, a, a submitted project, when it was just kind of in my head and I was working on it. One of the first things I did um, that summer was preach through it verse by verse. And so it was kind of out of that in-depth research that I did for that. And then the whole book then was able to kind of expand into a proposal and then into a, um, an actual project. And so, I don't know, I, I feel like as a pastor and a writer, those things really can integrate well if we allow them to, and we see them as as one and the same. The way you describe it mirrors so much of my experience, and I, I hear in you, your description this sense of patience, but sort of faithfulness to the work that I think is required. And it it so often feels like the writing advice you get is you've got to write so much a day, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be all in on it. Yeah, you've got to write towards what is what is sort of a breaking topic is, you know, you're right at the forefront of a conversation. It's about how quick can you get this work out? But this idea of sort of writing in the margins of recognizing these projects do, I don't think people realize books are normally projects of, of years, <laughs> not weeks or months. Uh, but your willingness to sort of just stay faithful to that work and to those topics, I think is a, a really helpful model for those of us who are who are not trying to just make it as a full-time writer, but trying to do that writing out of some other work like the pastoral work itself. Yeah, I uh, I would love to uh, maintain a Stephen King schedule and, you know, write thousand plus words every morning and then continue on with the rest of my day. But it just doesn't happen. And that's not what God has called me to in this season. And I think we've got to recognize that and say, that's okay. If if my writing needs to progress a little slower, that's okay. Well, Mark, the book, again, uh, we've been talking about Lost Shepherd, what believers once knew about Psalm 23, that moder- the modern world has forgotten. Uh, a really helpful book. I'm grateful to have been able to have read it and also to endorsed it. Uh, I'd love to hear if people are interested in your work. Is there a place they can follow you? Uh, of course, they can pick up the book uh, wherever books are sold. I'll have links to it. But uh, then also maybe what what you're working on now. Is there any sort of long project in the works we can be looking forward to? Uh, yeah, you can find me at markfugit.com. And uh, everywhere on most social media places that social media happens. Um, I am working on a couple of projects right now. And I, um, so they're in different stages of acceptance. Nothing is official, official at this point. One of the projects I'm really excited about is, is digging into Jesus and his teaching outdoors, kind of connecting the theology of how Jesus used the outdoors in his analogies, his um, his stories, his comparisons 
just to and and how our understanding needs to be um, maybe tuned up a bit in that area for us to really fully appreciate and understand what Jesus is is teaching uh, for us today. Um, and so that's one of the projects I'm working on uh, right now. I'm excited about that. I've also got a biography kind of in the works, and um, we're working on some of that. But uh, and as you know, there's uh, a word document a mile long with all the different things that I, I would love to write uh, if I live long enough. And I, I think I, I think I have a word document open right now from something about three days ago where I had an idea and I stopped everything else and wrote two pages, uh, completely unrelated to anything else I'm working on. So um, I just uh, I'm excited that uh, have an opportunity to have a conversation with any reader uh, through the book. And so I'm looking forward to people reading it. I always like to ask about dissertations as well, too, because nobody, no, when do you get to talk about your dissertation? So I'm curious, what uh, the PhD work, what was the dissertation on? Uh, so, so most of my academic study has been on medieval Christians and violence. Uh, it's not a popular topic to bring up, but, uh, and so thank you for bringing it up by all means. <laughs> right at the end. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I wrote on uh, the Cathar heresy in southern France in the 1200s, um, basically uh, a dualistic, almost Gnostic heresy that came out kind of a an adaptation of Christianity um, into something else in southern France. But I wrote specifically about the crusade against it and how Christians weaponized scripture to promote violence. Um, one of the things that I was trying to push back on, and one of the things I always try to push back on is this myth that access to Scripture um, was, or lack of access to Scripture, is what really created um, some of these terrible things that we see in medieval history, like you know, terrible violence in the Crusades and those types of things. What I wanted to say was it wasn't access or lack of access, it was interpretation. So that's the same reason uh, they, they were able to look at the same scripture that we see today and do terrible things and justify it. Um, it's to push back on this idea that, well, with the Reformation, we got access to scripture and now we're going to be better people. Well, what we unfortunately, we still see Christians misusing scripture to do terrible things in the name of God. And as true believers and as people of hope, as God has called us to be, we should uh, be aware of that, and we should realize that, uh, yes, people can do terrible things with Scripture, uh, and we don't want to be those people. We want to keep the gospel good news of great joy for everyone. And so, anyway, I wrote about how that uh, that Scripture was weaponized um, I, in, the, in the 1200s to do terrible things. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. And you're a, you're a great pastor and writer. You contextualize that down for all of us that aren't familiar with 12th century French French history. I, I so, but I'm sure if, if anybody out there is interested, I'm sure you could reach out. He'll pass on a link to the dissertation. But of course, go pick up a copy of Lost Shepherd, all of those links in the show notes. And Mark, really a, a privilege to talk to you and excited about uh, work to come. We'll have you back on for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much.
As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com. While you're there, I'd appreciate it if you'd take a time to subscribe to the show and possibly leave a review. You can do that by clicking one of the stars, a rating, or typing out a short message. I always love getting that feedback, what you've been enjoying, what you'd like to hear more of. Plenty more to come in the weeks ahead. I'm looking forward to those conversations with you. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.